0: Today I'm going to talk about the prior probability of the resurrection, or more specifically, I'm going to talk about talking about the prior probability of the resurrection and about what it means to set aside the prior probability when we consider the specific evidence for the resurrection. And I'm gonna talk about a couple of different things that could be meant by saying we're setting aside the prior probability of the resurrection and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I was asked to do this video by someone out there. I'm not going to say who it is, but you know who you are, so this is for you. Slightly technical video, Uh, but if you ever see a skeptic complaining that uh, the McGrews in their article do not do enough to discuss the prior probability of the resurrection, you can point them to this video. Now, in order to pursue this question, we need to know what is meant by the prior probability, and specifically what I like to talk about is the evidence relevant to the prior probability, and then what I call the specific evidence, or the evidence E. So when we do some kind of Bayesian analysis, we often will use the capital letter E, or some people use the small letter E, to indicate the specific evidence that we're considering at a given moment. And in some ways, when you divide up evidence into evidence for the prior and evidence uh, that you're specifically going to focus on, that you're going to call your e. It doesn't matter a whole lot how you divide it up, as long as you're clear and consistent. And you never double count anything, and and you don't leave anything out. Especially in the end, if you're going to talk about what's called the posterior probability, which is supposed to be the probability on all evidence after you've taken e into account. Uh, sometimes you can do a series where you'll have, you know, uh, probability distribution one distribution two, distribution three, and you'll have, you know, priors and posteriors each way along, and that could sometimes be a good way of organizing it. But the idea is that in the end, you know, you're supposed to take everything into account, and you're not supposed to double count anything. When it comes to an event that is supposed to have taken place at a particular point in time, that makes it kind of convenient to divide up evidence relevant to the prior and the specific evidence about the event, because we can just go up to the time of the event and say, well, all of all of the evidence that was relevant prior, prior to that time, we can take prior in a literal chronological sense, is evidence relevant to the prior. And then after that, uh, presumably there's a reason why we're talking about this alleged event. So there's the people who say that it happened and maybe people who said that it didn't happen uh, or evidence that is considered for or against it that comes up after that time of that it allegedly happened, where there's a sort of an it to, to argue about whether it happened or not. So that chronological division can be useful. And of course, the resurrection of Jesus is supposed to have taken place at a certain point in time. So I myself, when I talk about evidence relevant to the prior probability, I will um, be talking about all of the evidence up to Jesus' death and burial, you know, right right up to that. So if he allegedly fulfilled any prophecies in his crucifixion, I would count that as relevant to the prior. Or um, C.S. Lewis's liar, lunatic, or lord, because it can be applied just to the sayings and the ministry of Jesus, I would consider that relevant to the prior. So it's, um, you know, like everything up to the point where People start testifying he really was risen from the dead. Then that stuff is what I would consider the specific evidence e. Um, after that, after that time, so that's a good way to to think about that division chronologically. Now, what do we mean by saying we're not going to get into talking about the prior probability? We didn't exactly put it that way in our 2009 ar- article, but. We, we said things that indicate we were going to try to calculate a prior probability. We were going to try to calculate a posterior probability. And I gather that annoys some skeptics. Well, if you're just going to not worry about the prior, now nah, you're making it easy for yourself. Really? Um, and then that's considered an objection. To understand why that's not a good objection, why that doesn't make an uh, argument irrelevant. Let's consider an example. I like to do these kind of modern examples, so let's imagine the proposition, Jim owns a dog on October 1st, 2021, and Jim is my friend in this story, and he also lives in my neighborhood. So we have evidence relevant to the prior probability that Jim owns a dog on October October 1st. And let's suppose it's after October 1st at this point. But evidence relevant to the prior would be things like, uh, Jim's house is very neat. Jim doesn't like things to be messed up. Jim has always said he will never own a dog. Okay. Uh, Jim just doesn't seem like a dog person. Um, But on the other hand, Jim has recently become engaged and his fiance doesn't own a dog but loves dogs and will often post on Facebook about how much she loves dogs. So that's evidence on the other side, but this is all evidence relevant to the prior. If we were sitting around before October 1st and saying, is Jim ever going to own a dog? Is Jim gonna get a dog? These are the kinds of pros and cons that we would bring up. But now let's suppose it's after October 1st and I'm talking to a mutual friend and I say, would you believe it? Jim got a dog. And that person starts saying, no way, Jim always swore he would never get a job. And I just say, set all of that aside. He posted pictures on Facebook of a dog, and he said, I always said I would never get a dog, but here I am, here we are. I I guess I have to, and he tagged his fiancé and he said she talked him into it. Moreover, I say... I saw him walking a dog in the neighborhood just the other day and it looked exactly like the dog in the pictures on Facebook. So you can say what you like about how Jim always swore he would never own a dog, but I have specific evidence that Jim does now own a dog. Now do we say that I have set aside the prior probability that uh, against Jim's dog ownership? Well, in one sense, in the sense that I'm not re-entering that debate. I'm not going in there and saying, well, there was this, but there was this, but there was this, and hmm, you know. What I'm saying is that the specific evidence that I now have swamps that. It's so strong that I'm going to say to my skeptical mutual friend, if you think this is some big giant hoax, you need to say what your additional reasons are for such a strong conclusion that you could actually dismiss all of this specific positive evidence. So I consider that positive evidence to be strong enough that it can even swap a fairly strong prior case that Jim will never own a dog. So in one sense, I'm addressing the prior, just in the sense that I'm saying, just look, you know, look at all this strong evidence. Even if you thought you had reason against it, this this could swap that. It certainly seems like it ought to be able to swap that. But in another sense, I'm not addressing the prior in that I am not going back and trying to give you know a specific weight to every bit of prior evidence that Jim will never own a dog and then calculate it out and say that this, um, this swaps it. I just think that it, it's a really strong case. And I'm saying the specific evidence I have is a really strong case. In the case of the resurrection, uh, Tim and I did something rather like that in our 2009 paper. We actually talked, I was just doing a sort of a search for the phrase, you know, prior probability, uh, in the article recently. We talked about the prior quite a bit in several different ways. Sometimes we would talk about the probability, given that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that some other thing would happen. And that you could think of that, it's a conditional probability, but you could think of it as a kind of prior for that other thing like, um, you know, the women hallucinating or something like that, if Jesus didn't rise. Um, So sometimes that's where we're using that phrase. But other times what we're doing is just emphasizing that the skeptic cannot remain, in the words of non-Christian scholar John Earman, above the fray. He cannot say, well, naturalism is true, so never mind. The prior probability of a miracle is just so low that anything else is preferable. He's going to need to get down into it because something that we emphasize there is that probabilistically any finite, low, prior probability can be swapped by sufficiently strong, sufficient uh, specific evidence. So let me repeat that. Any finite, low, prior probability can be swapped by sufficiently strong, specific evidence on the other side. There are no slippery prior probabilities. Like, oh, well, that's low, so it's slippery. So you're you're just always going to slip down the hill, you know. Um, And so that's why you can't just say, well, this is really low prior, so we're justified in believing that aliens raised Jesus from the dead or uh, whatever uh, cobbled together ad hoc series of hypotheses we are bringing in here to try to explain away the the specific evidence more often what i find is that skeptics and unfortunately some who do not build themselves as skeptics will not get sufficiently deeply into the the evidence i saw one argument that uh the 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 theft of jesus body was a sufficient uh hypothesis to explain the evidence and i was just looking at that you know um, or one something about to the effect that uh, Jesus swooned, the swoon theory, and that then he had a, a, a confederate, you know, a friend who helped him out of the tomb and so forth. That doesn't explain the specific evidence well at all. And so I think that's a sign that there's a certain shallowness in approaching this. Uh, of course, some people will say that it was just a hoax, that the uh, disciples just faked it. Uh, and I want to just say right here that I do not consider that it's always a cop-out to think it's plausible that something may have been faked. I will unabashedly do this in many cases of claimed miracles where I'll be like, look, you know, these people didn't stand to lose anything for claiming this, so it's it's got to be up there. There are religious frauds. There are religious fakes. And people will say, how dare you, would you like someone to do that with the, uh, with the resurrection? And what I'll say is, well, if they try it, I will answer it. Um, because what doesn't get considered well enough is the context of persecution in which the disciples were bringing this forward and the fact that they had much to lose and little or nothing to gain by even claiming this, even if it was true, uh, and all the less so if it was false. They they would have had reason to kind of look forward and say, hmm, you know, what's gonna to happen to me if if I do that? So that context of persecution is a big difference between the resurrection claims and many other religious miracle claims, or even just uh, claims of wonders or paranormal events or something of that kind. Now that's just a brief summary of what it might look like to come down from the heights and engage more with the evidence. The point that we make in the paper is that you, you have to do something like that. And you can't just say, oh well, the prior probability is so low, the prior probability is so low. And in order to, to bring that home, we estimate this extremely high, what we call Bayes factor, which is a way of estimating the weight of the evidence. And we say, now, that base factor is so strong, we can now we can back solve for how strong of a prior case against the resurrection it could swamp or overcome. And you can do that. You know, and it's, it's a little bit like the evidence that Jim owns a dog. We could say, well, even if you had pretty strong evidence where he, you know, swore on a stack of Bibles that he would never own a dog, this would still be enough to swamp it. So what makes you think you have even stronger evidence than that that would be enough to outweigh this very strong evidence right now, specific evidence that he does own a dog? Similarly, we said you could have this prior probability against it it was really high and it would still be swamped and leave you with a posterior of, you know, 0.99 or whatever. you know. So um, you can do that and you can do that mathematically and you can look at our paper for the details. Now that's a sense of addressing the prior, but it's a sort of indirect sense. It's not saying this is what we think the prior was. I think the prior was not all that particularly low because there's evidence that God exists and so forth. I don't think the prior was astronomically low, but we were pointing out even if the prior was very low, if this evidence is as strong as we are actually arguing it is it could swamp it one reason for not trying to estimate an actual prior probability and therefore an actual posterior probability is as i just hinted because of the involvement of the existence of god now that gets us into so many other kinds of arguments the problem of evil it's supposed to be evidence against the um Kelam cosmological argument is evidence for the argument from mind and on and on and on. There are all of these arguments for and against the existence of God, many of which were dealt with by other people elsewhere in the volume. We were certainly not in that article going to say, hey, let's estimate a prior probability for the existence of God, and specifically the existence of the Judeo-Christian God. You've got the existence of the Jews. You've got evidence from the Old Testament. Jesus alleged fulfillment of prophecy. All of those things are relevant to the prior probability of the resurrection. Now that's many, many books worth, right? of work, as it was, our article was pretty long, but what we were tasked with was investigating specifically the argument, the specific argument for the resurrection and giving an estimate of how strong that was. And so that's why in the one sense we had to set aside the prior in that we did not propose a specific prior, and therefore we're not in a position to propose a specific posterior. But in another sense, we did address it, both by saying you can't just uh, say, oh, well, naturalism's true, so never mind, because you need to admit that even if it's a low prior probability, evidence could overcome it. And second of all, we did address it in the sense of back-solving for a very, very low prior that could, nonetheless, we argued, be swamped by evidence of the strength that we gave. So that's In a sense, we did, and in a sense, we didn't, and I think that shows why it's a significant argument without calculating a specific prior or even estimating a specific prior at a specific posterior. So I hope that's of interest. Next time, come back, and I think what I'll be doing next time is talking a little bit about what I think about the synoptic problem concerning the relations of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So come back next time to the Lydia McGrew channel. Please be sure to like and subscribe.